0: Greetings, listeners. It is I, D.B. Spitzer, in Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian-leaning. keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff.
1: Astounding Stories 07 July 1930 by Various The Terror of Air Level 6 Part 3 He had risen from his chair in his anger, and now he sat down suddenly and shook a forefinger in my face. "Say," He exploded. You can't tell me that some mastermind of our own world is not back of this I'm not telling you. I replied startled at the fierce fire that flashed from his eyes. I know I'm just trying to think aloud and I'm liable to say anything But this sort of business is the work of humans as sure as you're born Still I believe that what Simler says is true. I can't believe that any country on earth is back of the thing It must be an attack from beings of another planet but I think they have as a leader a man who is of our own Earth. Marie's eyes opened wide at this. "'But how could that be?' she asked. "'Surely no one on our Earth has made the trip to one of the other planets?' "'It may be that someone has,' replied Hart. "'Do you remember Professor Oradell? "'Remember about ten years ago, I think it was, when he and a half-dozen or more of extremely radical scientists built a rocket they claimed would reach the moon?' They were ridiculed, and hissed, and relegated to the position of half-baked, crazy inventors. But Oradell had a large private fortune, and he and his crowd built themselves a workshop and a laboratory in a secluded region in the Ozarks. Here they labored and experimented, and eventually the rocket ship was constructed. No person was in their confidence, but when the machine was completed, they issued a statement to the press to the effect that they were ready for the voyage to the moon and that when they returned, a reckoning with the world was to be made for its disbelief and total lack of sympathy. Again the press subjected Ordel to a series of scathing denunciations, and the scientific publications refused to take cognizance of his claims in any way, shape, or form. Then one night a great rocket roared into the heavens, leaving a terror-stricken countryside in the wake of its brilliantly visible tale. Several observatories whose telescopes picked up and followed the trail of the contraption reported that it described a huge parabola mounting high into the stratosphere and falling back to earth where it was lost in the depths of the Pacific Ocean. There the thing ended and it was soon forgotten. But I believe that this rocket ship of Oradell's reached Mars or Venus and that the peoples of whichever planet they reached must have been prevailed upon and prepared to war upon this world. And that would explain their knowledge of our languages and codes, I ventured, and would likewise account for the fact that the first of our ships to be attacked were those carrying large shipments of currency, though if these were destroyed by the fire columns, I cannot see what good the money would do them. Don't believe the first three were destroyed, grunted Hart. You'll remember that in these cases the pillars of fire, or whatever you want to call them, were of a cold light whereas now they are viciously hot and leave behind them the terrible, destructive fires that spread and spread and seemingly never are extinguished. No, I think that the force used is something of the nature of an atom-disrupting triad of beams, and these set up by the column as a veritable tornado, a whirling column of roaring wind rushing skyward with tremendous velocity. The first ships, I believe, were carried into the stratosphere and captured intact by the enemy. Since the declaration of war the nature of the column has altered the three beams instead of meeting at or near the surface of the earth Now join high in the heavens and the column strikes downward instead of expending its force upward And added energy is used which produces the terribly destructive force below And now we're able to locate fragments of the ships destroyed above Whereas previously there were no traces Sounds reasonable, commented George. But why have they not landed and waged their war right here, without warning, if that's what they now intend to do? A natural question, George. But I have a hunch that the space flyer or flyers of the enemy, are conserving fuel, by remaining beyond gravity. You know, in space flying, the greatest expenditures of energy are in leaving or landing on a body. And once landed, they might not have sufficient fuel for a getaway they know we are not exactly helpless once they are in our midst and are taking this means of reducing us to the point of complete subjection before risking their precious selves among us the telephone startled us by its insistent ring it was a call from the hanger for hart the news broadcast announcer was in the midst of a long dissertation regarding the discovery only this morning that there were certain apparent discrepancies in the movements of the tides and unwonted perturbations of the moon's orbit there flashed on the screen a view of the great observatory at mount wilson and professor loveland of that institution stepped into the foreground of the scene to take up the discussion so mechanically repeated by the announcer "'Must leave for the hangar at once,' declared Hart, returning from the telephone. "'Simler and his staff are there, and we're wanted immediately.' "'Oh, Jack!' Marie begged with her eyes. "'Got to be done, honey,' I responded. "'And believe me, I'm going to do what little I can do to help. "'Suppose we surrendered?' "'I shuddered anew at the very thought, and took hurried leave of my family. "'Hart and George awaited me in the hall.' Had I known what was to transpire before the end of the war, I am certain I would have been in much less of a hurry. We rushed to the hangar, where Secretary Simler and his party awaited us in the office. Rather, I should say, they waited for Hart Jones. Mr. Jones, said the Secretary of War, when the introductions were over, it's up to you to get the pioneer in shape to go out after these terrible creatures before the forty-eight hours have expired. We have replied to their ultimatum, and have told them we will have our answer ready within the appointed time. But it is already agreed between the Nations of the World Alliance that our reply is to be negative. Better far that we submit to the utter destruction of our civilization than agree to their terms. I believe I can do it, Mr. Secretary, was Hart Jones' simple comment. At least I will try but you must let me have an experienced astronomer, at once, with whom to consult." "'Astronomer?' "'Yes, immediately. I have a theory, but I am not enough of a student of astronomy myself to work it out.' "'You shall have the best man in the Air Naval Observatory at once,' Secretary Simler chewed his cigar savagely. "'And anything else you might need,' he concluded. "'There is nothing else, sir,' Hart turned from the great men who regarded him solemnly. Some with expressions of hope, others with plain distrust written large on their countenances. They left in silence, and we returned to our work with renewed vigor. Within an hour there arrived by fast plane an undersized, thick-spectacled man who presented himself as Professor Linquist from the Government Observatory. He was immediately taken into the office by heart, and the two remained behind closed doors for the best part of four hours. Meanwhile the hangar hummed with activity as usual. We in the chemical laboratory were engaged in compounding the high explosive used as fuel in the Pioneer. and This was being compressed to its absolute limit, and was stored in long steel cylinders in the form of a liquid of extremely low temperature. These cylinders were at once transferred to a special steel vault, where the temperature was kept at a low enough point to prevent expansion and consequent loss of the explosive not to speak of the danger of destroying the entire lot of us in its escape the generating apparatus of the pioneer was to be dispensed with for this trip since it was of no value outside the atmosphere where there was no air from which to extract the elements necessary for the production of the explosive instead the entire supply of fuel for the trip was to be carried aboard the vessel in the cylinders we were engaged in filling hart had calculated there was just sufficient room to store fuel for a trip of about two hundred thousand miles from the earth and a safe return we hoped this would be enough on a scaffolding around the pioneer there were now so many workers that it seemed they must forever be in another's way but the work was progressing with extreme rapidity already there projected from her blunt nose a slender rod of shining metal which was the projector of one of the destructive rays whose generator and auxiliaries were being installed under the supervision of the government experts. The force had been trebled and was now working in shifts of two hours each, the pace being so exhausting that highest efficiency was obtained only by using these short periods additional rocket tubes were being installed and the steel framework of a bulge now showed on the hull this bulge being an additional fuel storage compartment that would provide a slight additional resistance and consequently lower speed in the lower levels but would prove little hindrance in level six and none at all in outer space when hart emerged from his office he appeared to be very tired indeed but his face bore an expression of triumph that could not be mistaken. He and this little scientist from Washington had evidently arrived at some momentous conclusion regarding the enemy. "'Jack,' he said when he reached my bench during his first round of the hangar, "'celestial mechanics is a wonderful thing. I had a hunch, and this astronomer chap has proved it correct with his mathematics.' Our friend the enemy is out there in space, at a point where his own mass and velocity are exactly counteracted by those of the Earth and its satellite, the Moon. He is just floating around in space, doing no work whatsoever to maintain his own position. He has temporarily assumed the role of a second satellite to us, and is revolving around us at a definite period that was calculated by Lindquist. The gravitational pull of the Moon keeps him from falling to the Earth, and that of the Earth keeps him from approaching the Moon. The resultant of the set of forces is what determines his orbit, and the disturbance in the normal balance is what has been observed by the astronomers, who reported changes in the tides and in the Moon's orbit. But Lindquist's figures prove that the vessel or fleet of the enemy must be of tremendous size to produce such discrepancies, infinitesimally small though they might seem. We have a big fellow with whom to deal. But we know where to find him now How can he work from a fixed position to make his attacks on the earth at such widely separated points? I asked it isn't a fixed position in the first place and besides the earth rotates once in 24 hours while the moon travels around the earth once in about 28 days But even so the widespread destruction could not be accounted for he must send out scouting parties or something of that sort That's one of the things we're to learn when we get out there. We'll have some fun, Jack. Will the pioneer be ready, I asked. Evidently, I was to go. She will, with the exception of the acceleration neutralizers. But I'm having some heavily cushioned and elastic supports made that will, I believe, save us from injury. And I guess we can stand the discomfort for once. In such a cause I for one am willing to go through anything to help keep this overwhelming disaster from our good old world Jackie whispered we must prevent it. We've got to Then he was gone, and I watched him for a moment as he dashed headlong from one task to another He was a whirlwind of energy once more 43 hours and 20 minutes had passed since the receipt of the enemy's ultimatum the last bolt was being tightened in the remodeled pioneer and secretary Simler and his staff were on hand to witness the take-off of the vessel on which the hopes of the world were pinned the news of our attempt had been spread by cable and printed news only for there was fear that the enemy might be able to pick up the broadcasts of the news services and thus be able to anticipate us as usual there were many scoffers but the consensus of opinion was in favor of the project At any rate, what better expedient was there to offer? The huge airport, now unused on account of the complete cessation of air traffic, was closed to the public, but there was quite a crowd to witness the takeoff. the visitors from Washington, the officials of the field, and the two hundred workers who had enabled us to make ready for the adventure in time. There were four to enter the Pioneer, Hart, George, Professor Lindquist, and myself and when the entrance manhole was bolted home behind us, the watchers stood in silence, waiting for the roar of the pioneer's motor. As the starter took hold, Hart waved his hand at one of the ports, and every man of those two hundred and some watchers stood at attention and saluted as if he were a born soldier, and Hart a born commander-in-chief. We taxied heavily across the field, for the pioneer was much overloaded for a quick takeoff. She bumped and bounced for a quarter of a mile before taking to the air, and then climbed very slowly indeed for several minutes. Our speed was a scant two hundred miles an hour when we swung out over New York and headed for the Atlantic, and then Hart made first use of the rocket tubes not daring to discharge the hot gases below while overpopulated land at so low an altitude. He touched one button, maintaining the pressure for but a fraction of a second. The ocean slipped more rapidly away from beneath our feet, and he touched the button once more. Our speed was now nearly seven hundred miles an hour, and we made haste to buckle ourselves into the padded, hammock-like contrivances which had been substituted for the former seats. In a very few minutes we entered level six, and the motor was cut off entirely. A blast from a number of the tail rockets drove me into my supporting hammock so heavily that I found difficulty in breathing, and could scarcely move a muscle to change position. The rate of acceleration was terrific, and I am still unable to understand how Hart was able to manipulate the controls. For myself I could not even turn my head from its position in the padding and I felt as if I were being crushed by thousands of tons of pressure. Then the pressure was somewhat relieved, and I glanced to the instruments. We were more than a thousand miles from our starting point, and the speed indicator read seven thousand miles an hour. We were traveling at the rate of nearly two miles a second. Another blast from the rockets, this one of interminable length, and I must have lost consciousness. "'for when I next took note of things "'I found that we had been out for nearly two hours "'and that the tremendous pressure of acceleration was relieved. "'I moved my head experimentally "'and found that my senses were normal, "'though there was a strange and alarming sensation "'of being wrong side up. "'Then I remembered that I had experienced the same thing "'when we first searched the upper levels of the atmosphere "'for the origin of the destructive rays of the enemy. "'But this was different.' I gazed through a nearby port, and saw that the sky was entirely black, the stars shining magnificently brilliant against their velvet background. Streamers of brilliant sunlight from the floor ports struck across the cabin and patterned the ceiling. Looking between my feet, I saw the sun as a flaming orb with streamers of incandescence that spread in every direction with such blinding luminosity that I could not bear the sight for more than a few seconds. Off to what I was pleased to think of as our left side, there was a huge globe that I quickly made out as our own earth. Eerily green it shone, and though a considerable portion of the surface was obscured by patches of white that I recognized as clouds, I could clearly make out the continents of the eastern hemisphere. It was a marvelous sight, and I lost several minutes in awed contemplation of the wonder. And then I heard Hart laugh. "'Just coming out of it, Jack?' he asked. I stared at him foolishly. It had seemed to me that I was alone in this vast universe, and the sound of his voice startled me. "'Guess I am not fully out of it yet,' I said. "'Where are we?' "'Oh, about sixty thousand miles out,' he replied carelessly. "'And we are travelling at our maximum speed. That is the maximum we need for this little voyage.' "'Little voyage?' I gasped. And then I looked at George and the professor, and saw that they too were grinning at my discomfiture. I laughed crazily, I suppose, for they all sobered at once. Traveling through space at more than 40,000 miles an hour, it seemed that we were stationary. Movement was now easy, too easy, in fact, for we were practically weightless. The professor was having a time of it, manipulating a pencil and a pad of paper, on which he had a mass of small figures that were absolutely meaningless to me he was calculating and plotting our course and without him we should never have reached the object we sought time passed rapidly for the wonders of the naked universe were a never-ending source of fascination occasionally a series of rocket charges were fired to keep our direction and velocity but these were light and the acceleration so insignificant that we were put to no discomfort whatsoever. But it was necessary that we keep our straps buckled, for in the weightless condition, even the slightest increase or decrease in speed, or change in direction, was sufficient to throw us the length of the cabin from which painful bruises might be received. The supports to which we were strapped, and which saved us from being crushed by the acceleration and deceleration, were similar to hammocks. Being hooked to the floor and ceiling of the cabinet, rather than suspended horizontally in the conventional manner and this was for the reason that the energy of the rockets was expended fore and aft except for steering and the forces were therefore along the horizontal axis of the vessel the supports were elastic and the padding deep and soft being swivelled at top and bottom They could swing around so that deceleration as well as acceleration was relieved For this reason the controls had been altered so that the flexible support in which Hart was suspended could rotate about their pedestal Thus allowing for their operation by the pilot either when accelerating or decelerating How he could control the muscles of his arms and hands under the extreme conditions is still a mystery to me however And George agrees with me in this we found ourselves to be utterly helpless. My next impression of the trip is that of swinging rapidly around and finding myself facing the rear wall of the cabin. Then, the tremendous pressure once more at a burst from the forward tubes, we had commenced deceleration. For me there were alternate periods of full and semi-consciousness, and to this day I can remember no more than the high spots of that historical expedition. Then we were free to move once more. "'and I turned to face the instrument board. "'Our relative velocity had become practically zero, "'that is, we were travelling through space "'at about the same speed and in the same direction as the earth. "'The professor and Hart were consulting a pencil chart "'and excitedly looking first through the forward ports "'and then into the screen of the periscope. "'This is the approximate location,' averred the professor. "'But they are not here,' replied Hart. George and I peered in all directions and could see nothing excepting the marvels of the universe we had been viewing The moon now seemed very close and its craters and so-called seas were as plainly visible as in a four-inch telescope on earth, but we saw nothing of the enemy The earth was a huge ball still but much smaller than when I had first observed it from the heavens the Sun's corona the flaming streamers, which the professor declared extended as much as five million miles into space, was partly hidden behind the rim of the Earth, and the effect was blinding. A thin crescent of brilliant light marked the rim of our planet, and the rest was in shadow, but a shadow that was lighted awesomely in cold green by reflected light from her satellite. I have it! suddenly shouted the professor. We are all in very nearly the same line with reference to the sun, and the enemy is between the blazing body and ourselves. We must shift our position, move into the shadow of the earth. We have missed our calculation by a few hundred miles, that is all." All? I thought. These astronomers, so accustomed to dealing in tremendous distances that must be measured in light years, thought nothing of an error of several hundred miles. "'but I suppose it was really an inconsiderable amount at that. "'At any rate, we shifted position and looked around a bit more. "'We saw nothing at first, and then Hart consulted the chronometer. "'Time is up,' he shouted. "'On the instant, there was a flash of dazzling green light "'from a point not a hundred miles from our position, "'a flash that was followed by a streaking pencil of the same light "'shooting earthward with terrific velocity.' breathlessly we followed its length saw it burst like a bomb and hurl three green balls from itself which sped at equally spaced angles to form a perfect triangle they hovered a moment at about two thousand miles above the surface of the earth according to the professor who was using the telescope at the time and shot their deadly rays toward our world we were too late to prevent the renewal of hostilities another and another streak of green light followed and we knew that great havoc was being wrought back home. But these served to locate the enemy's position definitely, and we immediately set about to draw nearer. We were still somewhat on the dark side of the object, which had prevented our seeing it, and now we swung about so that it was plainly visible, and what a strange appearance it presented out here in space. Fully fifteen miles in diameter, it was a huge doughnut, a great ring of tubing with a center opening that was at least 80% of its maximum diameter and there it hovered sending out those deadly missiles in a continuous stream toward our poor world as we approached the weird space flyer we saw that a number of objects floated about within the great circle of its inner circumference the ny18 the sf61 and the sf22 without a doubt the theory of heart was correct in every detail. End of part 3 of the Terror of Air Level 6
0: Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger. Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club join me and my fellow guide John Chadwick as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest that includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth B.C. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests, who you can find in the show notes, Read review, subscribe, and remember patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos.
1: Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Let's go.